Tonight's episode of Colors of the Dark is brought to you by the new movie, You're Killing Me. Don't miss McKaylee Miller, Anne Heche, and Dermot Mulroney in the pulse-pounding thriller, You're Killing Me. When Eden attends a heaven or hell party, hoping to get a letter of recommendation to an elite university from the wealthy parents of her classmate, the party quickly turns into a fight for her life. You're Killing Me is available now to buy or rent. Welcome to Colors of the Dark. I'm your co-host, Rebecca McKendry, and with me back from our adventures in Seattle is Elric Kane. How you doing? I'm just happy to have sunshine again uh, and heal my skin, my very pale skin. Uh, I know. It was almost warm yesterday. It was like signs of spring, and suddenly I'm like this like forest witch emerging from her black hovel. And now we have crazy wind great. today to replace it. But no, Seattle was awesome, but it was a little cold. It was a little a little spicy while we were there. That's normal Seattle. I would and think we're so. just weak. Yeah. We're just weak people because it wasn't from everybody who lived in Seattle. It was like 50 and raining, and they were like, Yeah, this is not bad at all. And Elric and I are like shivering and Carrying around umbrellas, which is apparently the lamest thing you can do in Seattle, I was told. Man, what's the point of living somewhere rainy if you can't enjoy the classy umbrella? I know. we never. I never carry an umbrella here in L.A. Oh. because it's like it either never rains or it's a goddamn apocalyptic event. It's like there is no in-between. Like I never have the reason just to carry an umbrella to class or anything. It was, it was nice. But we had an yeah. utter blast uh, at Make Believe Festival uh, year one uh, from our friend Billy Ray Bruden. Uh, we were involved in many, many things. But before we got involved in the festival, like we kind of spent the first day kind of into that first um, or second morning, really trying to tourist up a few things that we thought would be cool, starting with like an underground tour of the history of yes. Seattle and what we called the malignant tour. Yeah. So we had, I had never known that um, Seattle has an underground layer. And so the, the five second kind of history of Seattle is they built one city, um, not understanding that there are these things called tides and it kept flooding and they have problems with sewage. And so after a while they were like, well, this won't work. Let's just build another city directly on top of this one story above it. And so they literally did. They raised all the streets up. They raised all the buildings up. And so directly below the Seattle waterfront, like 30 square blocks, I think they said, is this original like 1900s underground city. And so we had heard about this on Malignant because they talk a little bit about doing the underground tour at the top of Malignant. And so we were like, if we're going to Seattle, we're going to do that. And so we decided to do um, the Bill Keel, I think was his name, underground tour. And it was so goddamn fun. Um, like they take you, you know, you're just walking down random stairs through these locked doors on the side of streets. It totally feels like you're about to go down to your doom. And then you're standing in the middle of a early 1900s bank or a police precinct. And you can still see the storefronts. Like it's a lot about prostitution because that's apparently like what the waterfront was back then. Um, and and so funded the about, city. It funded yeah. the prostitution, funded the education system, which is pretty amazing. It's no, it's really fun. Yeah, we highly recommend people do that. We told the um, the screen drafts guys to go do that while they're there. And they seem to have a blast, too. So glad we did that. Uh, yeah, absolutely fascinating. And then the next day before we really got into the festival, 
we did the Modern Pop Culture Museum of Seattle, which again was just wonderful. They have a science fiction wing. They have a fantasy wing. They have an amazing horror wing, which we, um, of course, then are reading the credits that they have posted on the wall, like who are the contributors and the curators. And it's Ryan Turek and Roxanne Benjamin and all these, um, Karen um, Kusama and all these. Guillermo. And all, yeah. Guillermo, yeah. It, and, it, it honestly get for people because I've been to the uh, Academy Museum a couple times in LA and I just love it. I guess it celebrates all things film. But I do think where it's going wrong is they don't have a horror wing. And I think that would get a whole bunch of people to always come to it. And the horror exhibit here is really fantastic. Like it's the yeah. way it's curated. It's like a really beautiful art mixed with horror experience. And it has a lot of the props, like, you know, you'll see, let's say you're in the science thing, you'll see the real Terminator, you'll see all the guns from Alien the movies, uh, you'll see all sorts of deep cuts like that. Then you go see Pamela Voorhees' actual head uh, from and Jason. It's just, it's a real nice mixture. There's a really cool, like, uh, vampire exhibit. It's just so well curated that... I, I mean, honestly, I think it's definitely one of the coolest horror things in America. Like uh, having, you know, I, I think it's long term there. So I think if anyone's yeah. planning a summer trip, uh, well worth it. It was great. And the thing that I have found most taxing about the Academy Museum is that it's only about Academy movies for a lot of it. It's like big, major studio films that have won a bunch of awards and then not much about um, smaller indie things that may have been landmark and definitely nothing about genre, like very small inclusions of genre. This really celebrated both the big like Halloweens, the, the you know, Friday the 13th. And then over here is Leech Woman from Full Moon's Puppet Master. Oh, yeah. And yeah. so it really had um, just as much smaller stuff as it did big giant things. Um, there was a Suspiria area that was actually closed down. I was really bummed. They had like a little Suspiria screening area. Um, but yeah, it was just as, as kind of understanding of Indies as it is giant. And that was the same with like the science fiction stuff and the fantasy where it just really embraced all of it. Um, there was a music wing. We went through the rap. They had a Pearl Jam wing. They had a Nirvana wing. Um, and then we also did, there was a wing that was dedicated to um, the production studio that did Coraline. And six and strings. Kubo. And, yeah, Kubo. Yeah. yeah, Kubo and the Six Strings. And so they had all of the little armatured figures from that. It was just really neat to walk through. Not exactly hard. Well, I guess Coraline. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, Coraline's yeah. definitely a great entry point. Yeah. But it, it really was a, a one of those things that was way better than you think it's going to be. Like, I thought, oh, this will be cool. I've heard about the horror thing. But it was like twice as good as you could have imagined it to be. So yeah. I recommend to that one. And then, you know, we were there on a, we were on a, for the live shows, we were on a screen drafts wood we won't reveal anything dark woods uh draft that is already on their patreon feed i don't know when it will be released to their main feed but look out for it because there's going to be some uh fun stuff there uh and we did a live show all about film poster art that we might be able to release someday if we can figure out how to make it visual because it's just us talking about <laughs> pictures posters yeah. and half the time we don't even describe the poster we're just like so in this poster from blend yeah, yeah. and then we keep going um, I saved everything in case we can ever figure out how to, you know, put the the sound to the poster. We'll we'll figure. Yeah, it out. it's a, it'll be a YouTube show someday. We'll get it out there. But it was a lot of fun, and and that's something we're going to try to do anytime we do a live show is a visual element that doesn't translate just for audio because uh, it was fun. And you know, we met some some listeners, and that was cool. So we, uh, but I do think it's uh, I think for a first year that he did a great job, and I think you know let's let's hope these uh, smaller festivals keep growing. 
Yeah. And we didn't get as much time to go see films at this one no, because I didn't, we were yeah. participating so much in other events. But I do want to give um, a big shout out to the one film that I did get to see directed by Daniel Montgomery, who I love um, completely. And this is his film, The Jessica Cabin. This was very much like a pandemic project where he'd come up with the idea and it's all about isolation and kind of um, being willing to let go of your past and move on. And it's a ghost story. Don't expect it to be like a scary ghost jumping out at you ghost story. More of a kind of really quirky, um, funny, just kind of endearing ghost story like that uses ghosts as the device to move forward. And for horror fans, it's got Chase Williamson in it. Um, and he is just wonderful in it as well. So yeah, it's a really great little movie. So Jessica Cabin, hope it is coming soon. And uh, we might try to get Daniel on to tell us about it closer to the release. Wait, Chase Williamson from The Barista? Yeah, Chase Williamson from All the Creatures Were Stirring. No, but Chase The Barista Williamson. was the short film that we both worked on at Jump Cut way back at in the day. At Jump Cut, yeah. Many, many years ago. Hey, that short won awards, yeah, including like a best actor for Chase. Now that one, um, he's really good in that. I think you might, if you can dig hard enough, you might find that original short that I did somewhere on YouTube. The real star like is the cricket who wouldn't shut up. <laughs> There's a cricket in the in the place, and every time we were trying to get sound, I just remember all you could hear was the cricket. So, and I remember repeatedly saying, "Like, just move the freezer," and you're like, "It's like 800 pounds, Becca. It's yeah. like an industrial cafe freezer." And I'm like, "But I hear the cricket," and we never did find it. It just eventually shut up. Um, but that was a whole hour of that shoot was trying to find the fucking cricket. No, and because of that, we had to close the cafe. Completely. So that just was the end of Jump Cut it. was the cricket was and it. Becca's shoot. And we're like, you know what? We can't do this anymore. We're done. Just fucking we're out. done. We're you done. Uh, luckily, Becca paid us enough to retire. And that's <laughs> what I'm doing. Today is my last show. I just wanted to say it at the top. I can now retire because of I Becca's. Yeah. Off. Becca's paying me to no longer podcast. I'm glad. I'm glad for that. Yeah. So, so you know, April Fool's. But anyway, <laughs> then we rolled back and um, got to see some other cool stuff. So you want to kick us? Did you go see Dungeons and Dragons? I'm going to start with this up top because it's not quite hard. I was about to uh, yesterday. And then instead, I took my friend to see Nashville at the New Beverly. So I, I, be- oh, I betrayed my wife. children and went you to Nashville. You should have done both. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So the Dungeons and Dragons movie, I won't spend a lot of time on it because it's not horror in the horror sense. But let me say, this is some phenomenal gateway horror. This is the type of stuff that I would have watched when I was like eight or 10 and completely got excited about because it has zombies and carnage and wild exploding head fight scenes. Well, I love the cartoon giant... when I was a kid, the dungeon, the one where they're on the roller coaster and they get beamed into the other world. And oh yeah. I always loved that. I was, I didn't know if that had any of the story connecting to this. Like, um, no, okay. so the people <laughs> aren't from our world being beamed into another world. No, no, this uh, is very okay. much. It takes place in the dungeons and dragons world. And it is very clear that the writers are very deep into the Dungeons and Dragons world. Whereas like the movie that came out in the 2000s, well, it wasn't that great. I didn't particularly like it. It was very kind of precursory. This embraces all of the Dungeons and Dragons. There's like creatures in this, like axe birds that are like, um, you know, tiny little notes in Dungeons and Dragons. And you'll just see one run across the screen suddenly and it uses everything, like all of the monsters, all of the creatures, all the spells, everything. Like it is a giant kind of love letter to Dungeons and Dragons. But that said, even if you go in knowing nothing, it still functions as a really fun movie. I took both my kids and they 
loved it. And it's got some good jump scares. It's got very much kind of like a demonic tone to it with zombies. So beautiful gateway horror that I would have really loved when I was eight. And I still thought it was awesome when I'm no longer eight. So yeah. Well, one of the guys who what, directed what it. What age are we claiming to be? Like we're 23 something or something. like that. Yeah. We've been podcasting yeah, for yeah. 10. We started podcasting at 13. 13. There you go. 13. Yeah, uh, yeah. But yeah, one of the directors is the one of the three nerds from Freaks and Geeks who played Dungeons and Dragons in Freaks and Geeks. He was one of the one of those three characters, and now he's a director. He he made the really. I mean, the reason I should have known it would be great is that movie Game Night. He directed that, and that movie is that so is much so fun. I mean, it's much. probably one of the best like adult comedies in a long time. So not horror. It is just a straight up kind of thriller. Yeah, it's, it's more one crazy night. One of my favorite subgenres. Yeah. One crazy night. So, but they think they think they are part of this like murder mystery night. Um, but it is actually kind of expanding and happy. It's just fun. If you guys have not seen Game Night, it's not a horror film, but it is just a really yeah, well no, it's, made. Movie. It's going to be a yeah, definitely a cult comedy. Um, yeah. Well, I didn't see that one, but I do want to see it. And and in fact, the person I took to Nashville, he had just taken his family and he had the same raves as you did. And he's way tougher on movies. So he thought it was really Should good. Should have taken your kids, Elric. I know. That's in the cradle, motherfucker. Uh, well, I wanted to show them something um, kid horror. So I made them watch Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. <laughs> and now they won't talk to me. And one of them actually can't talk at all anymore. <laughs> he just stopped talking and sleeping. Okay. I'm totally intrigued by this movie, even more so because I was watching um, the John Oliver show last week tonight, last night on HBO, Uh and they fucking covered it. And it was like their gateway into a story about how um, Mickey Mouse is losing copyrights soon. Um, But that said, I was so like, it answered all my questions of how did they do this? And the answer was that the copyright for Winnie the Pooh had ended just before they started the movie. So it was very much like a self-aware. They knew exactly. Yeah, it's public domain horror to an extent. I think there's certain rules that it had. They can't they can't look too much like the original characters. They have to that they can't look like the Disney. Right, right. And so that's why like, wow. Anyway, what I'll say about this movie, I've just been curious because I have heard it range from this is the worst film of all time. And I've heard that a lot about this uh, mixed with other people saying, oh, it's going to be like Terrifier 2 and it's this crazy horror film. Um, and the truth is somewhere in there, uh, it, it is, uh, it's, it's by a guy who looks like he's done a lot of like, you know, movies in the asylum range and things like that. But what surprised me from reading the reviews is like at times, cause some people would say it's so cheap and I'm watching the screen going, this really doesn't look cheap to me. Like a lot of the times it doesn't look cheap at all. It actually has pretty, you know, pretty slick cinematography and, and like, you know, the creatures have proper costumes. And so by, by whatever your definition of cheap is, I don't think that was the issue. It feels, um, as the story goes and kind of the last act, it feels a little abandoned or undercooked because it kind of ends at a point where I'm like, what? That's the ending of this movie? Like, but what I will say, what surprise, and I gave this a terrible review, like full, full disclosure on, th- I didn't review it, but like in terms of stars, I, I just can't, I don't know. It's just it, it, on that level, it's not a good movie, but I will say the first 10 minutes or 15 minutes are super intriguing. Cause the, okay. So the basic concept is it start and it does a really clever thing with, hand drawing some of these panels um like little mini animations black and white very simple sketch style but it's about you know christopher robin is friends with winnie the pooh eeyore piglet uh and when he be starts becoming a you know late uh child slash early teenager he realizes he has to leave them and they've had all these adventures and he explains to them I- i'll be back soon you know to look after you and then he leaves them and then it- <laughs> it's one of the one of the funnier moments i've been at watching saying and he goes and he left 
and then they didn't know how to survive or how to eat and they were abandoned by the human and 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 then you know uh three you know three cold winters later they didn't know how to fend for themselves so they had to choose one and they eat eeyore they freaking cannibalize eeyore they just they turn on their own people i mean this is all hand drawn and you're like Okay, up to here, it's like super intriguing, and they and this is where it gets really dark. I mean, it goes so dark for from a kid's thing. It goes, and in that moment when they have to eat after eating Eeyore, which is really sad to me, um, they uh, Winnie the Pooh curses humanity, and now they have all these like human characteristics, and swears he'll never utter another word, and none of them they will all renounce their human behavior, and they will now hunt humans, and especially someday they will get revenge on christopher robin and that's the setup and i was like that's actually pretty cool for if you're going to make a movie like this and and up until then it's it, and even as it gets into the movie itself it retains some of that christopher robin now a full-grown you know i don't know 25 year old or something and it's trying to bring his you know girlfriend and who he's told all these childhood stories to to the back to this place and uh it then mixes if that that part of the story is still good but then it kind of mixes in, oh, and then three girls, you know, a group of five girls partying also come to the town and you're like, okay. So that then it becomes kind of straight slasher material. There are some a couple good kills. There's some good tones. Look, I don't want to completely throw, like it wasn't without its surprising kind of weird terms, but it's also, if you go on Letterboxd, it's probably the worst reviewed movie of the year. So, you know, it's, I think, I think the truth somewhere in between, but I don't regret watching it because I found it. You know, the whole thing was kind of an interesting endeavor. I wouldn't be surprised if a sequel is already greenlit and probably bigger and they probably give it more money and can kind of pull off some of the stuff. But Winnie's, they're, Winnie and Piglet are the two killing everyone and they're pretty grotesque looking versions of those original characters. Um, but yeah, you know, I understand it's going to get some buzz just because of the title. Okay, well, I was just thrilled to see this do a theatrical. Like, this has done a limited theatrical, and I was like, how wild is that, that this very kind of, um, I'll say, laughable concept um, can really push it and go huge like that. I love it. This is very much a post-terrifier to work. And good that they changed the title from The Slow Death of Eeyore, which would have been too bleak, you know? I mean, The Slow Death of Eeyore might just bring you down, you know? I feel so bad for Eeyore. (laughs) I'm sure he just gave it up, right? Like, they didn't even draw straws. He was just like, all right. we go to disney all the time eeyore when he walks around he is sad like all the other characters are waving and eeyore walks with his head down like it's just sad like you just want to hug college intern in um eeyore costume and be like it's okay man it's okay and yet during the pandemic Um, he's all of us so he was eeyore is symbolic you know there's we no Tigger. I don't know why there's no Tigger. no Tigger. No Tigger. I thought that was weird because Tigger said maybe he's the, come in the sequel, you know? I remember Tigger, wasn't he in the original book? My first thought was, oh, well, he must be like a Disney copyright thing, but I could have sworn I remember the Tiger as being part of the That's original That's actually, book. that could probably be why. Or either that or it was like difficult to make a Tigger that people would recognize. Yeah. I'm, I'm I'm very much kind of extrapolating, you know, random thoughts from this. I have there's no a girl in a hot there's a girl in, there's a girl in a hot tub and 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 they're sneaking up on her. That's how deep this goes. <laughs> there's a hot tub. There's literally hundred acre hey, woods. They've they've built it out to be like a little like with little um what are those cool glam? It's kind of like glamping or something. There's like uh some airstreams in there, a little hot tub. Hey, in the hundred acre yeah, woods. You know, it's it's hundred acre adjacent. <laughs> Okay, okay. I'm still going to end up watching this. Just you probably it will. Feels, um, it feels like an amusing evening. Yeah. Okay, so you know what? I'm going to go from depressed Eeyore to depression liminal horror. Right. Boom! Hey, Segway much? Check that shit out.
Um, okay. So I, and I will say this is loose horror, I will call it, but this came up, this film came up a ton when people were doing reviews and coverage and even just tweeting about Skinnamarink. And I kept hearing this movie get thrown around and that is Dimland from 2021. And this one, anytime somebody would use the phrase liminal heart, it was always like, you know, like Dimland. And I was like, what the fuck is Dimland? And I then started hearing it again when, um, what was the other liminal horror, the one with the worms that we really liked from Screen Uh, The Outlander, Outwaters? Outwaters. Outwaters, that was it, (laughs) Outwaters. And so same thing in the Outwaters coverage. I then started seeing this um, mention again is, you know, liminal horror, like Dimland. And I saw multiple articles kind of calling back to this as almost like this was the the start of liminal horror. And I was like, okay, well, 2021 dim land, let's go in is put out by gravitas ventures, um, which they do some interesting stuff. I mean, it's very much like they pick up films that have already been made, but that said, I like some of their tastes. Like they, I found some really interesting stuff through them. Um, Directed by a guy named Peter Collins Campbell, who had only done short films up to the point. This looks like his first feature. If I was to define liminal horror, this is liminal horror. So if you were into Skinnamarink, this might be a really interesting place to head. This isn't trying to scare you quite as much as I think Skinnamarink is, but it is still nightmarish, awkward, uncomfortable, haunting, all of the words I would use to describe both Outwaters and Skinnamarink. The whole concept is that this woman, this young woman, like 20-something, is suffering from severe depression or actually i think that the um actual log line word was melancholia mm-hmm. which i think is a really good word for it because it's just kind of like she's got the blues like she just doesn't know what to do with her life she's just sad she has no ambition she just is sad and doesn't know what's going on so she and her boyfriend hop in the car and she's like hey there's this cabin that my family owns that i used to go to all the time when i was a kid Let's just go there and hang out while I try to stop feeling like this. So I can't call this depression because she's not crying and she's not like, you know, she just can't really get out of bed and doesn't feel like doing anything and doesn't know what's making her sad. So they head to the cabin and the very first day they get to the cabin and she's like, oh, hey, the cabin's changed. It doesn't look like it did when she was a kid, but she remembers the woods and she remembers the fields she used to walk to. And the very first day that her and her boyfriend are there, still really melancholy, she's walking through the woods with her boyfriend and this masked person in this like wooden owl mask comes out from the forest and is like, hey, I'm your childhood best friend. Um, My name's Rue. And we hung out a lot when you were a kid. I was your best friend. And boyfriend's immediately like, who the fuck is the psychopath in the mask? Like, Treating him like he's a slasher, like uh, the boyfriend's like ready to run, thinks that this is just some freaky dude living in the woods. And suddenly she is like, uh, after a couple of encounters, she starts to remember it. Hmm. And she remembers this masked forest creature that she was best friends with. And that the more masked forest creature used to take her to places in the forest where basically reality as we know it stops. And that is the movie. Like that, it, it's the first act. Hmm. I mean, it's like, it's it's basically, that's the first 15 minutes of the movie. But then it just continues with her having conversations with this haunting, childlike, 
honestly downright scary masked creature as they kind of exist in the same space. And you really quickly realize that what you're watching is liminal horror because the whole thing is just her existing in this space. Well, she's also trying to exist with her boyfriend, which is very much like, who the hell is this mass dude that keeps following you around? What is it? What does he mean? You guys knew each other when you were kids. Like uh, he keeps saying that you're a soulmate, all this stuff. Like it gets, it's got this edge of reality, but so much of the movie is just her existing with this creature. And it's not like an imaginary friend because it exists in the reality of the boyfriend, but you quickly realize that what you're watching is kind of an allegory for her own depression and being to leave, willing to leave behind her past, but also feeling like she's stuck in it. Um, And there's a whole kind of artist's edge to it about the idea of creating something new. Um, So yeah, this was, it's short. This was like 70 minutes long and it was so haunting yet good yet captivating. Hmm. And I wasn't the only one who thought so. Cause as soon as I went on, it was like every single review was either five stars or one star, much like skin It's like either you get it and you love it. Or you're like, what the fuck did I just waste 75 minutes on? Um, I really liked this one. I was mid range on skin just cause I felt like we just stared at wainscoting for 90 minutes. Um, this one, and I wanted to edit it. <laughs> I wanted it shorter. This one it's, very liminal. You're still going to exist in this kind of quiet space for a really long time, but I liked what it did. So this is Dimland. It was on Amazon Prime right now. When was it from? Sure what year? Service. 2021. So this oh, would have been released recent. during the pandemic. Oh, okay. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. I haven't heard of that. You did because it is on your watch list on Letterboxd, sir. Well, it so doesn't mean it point... just means you probably watched and I clicked it or something, you know? I saw it on your watch list too. So I was immediately like, okay, well, he's vaguely familiar. But yeah, if you even just Google liminal horror, you will hear about Skinnamarink and this one. So if Skinnamarink, you know, kind of the experimental slow existing in a haunting space nature of it was your jam, check out Dimland. It was it was equally tight. Um, yeah, I'm like, it's like a possession movie when I make my watch list. I don't remember anything. I'm just like going through <laughs> charting movies. Um, all right. I saw something that actually I didn't see a lot of movies because I uh, ended up getting sucked into a series. Um, and I do want to recommend it because it is so unique. It's not straight horror. It's not comedy. It's dark humor, but mixed with all sorts of other genres. And that is the brand new series on Amazon called Swarm, which is created by uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> It's not, it hasn't got bees. So Chris Devlin was talking about this, or I think it was Chris. Um, somebody was yeah. talking about this at Seattle. And I said, is it horror? And the response was, well, the font is. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, the font is really good horror. Um, that, that is a good line. Uh, <laughs> I think that was Chris Devlin. It's um, No, it's actually really interesting. So it's the creators uh, from Atlanta. So, I mean, Donald Glover is one of the creators. And Janine Neighbors, who somebody came into the writer's room uh, and directed and wrote and produced um, a bunch of Atlanta with them. Uh, and I think it came up when they were in the final season, the idea of wanting to take a kernel from the true story uh, of a stalker kind of um, obsess- fan, obsessive fan of Beyonce's who and, and kind of her hive of fan fandom that, that turn on people in this case. So I guess part of the story is definitely true. Each episode starts with the thing saying this resembles real characters because they are real. Like it's kind of throws you. But then the show goes so off the rails. There's no way much of what happens after the first episode is based on any kind of reality. Um, the main actress, Dominique Fishback, is just fascinating so in episode one it's but she's just like this weird outsider 
who lives with her sister and is kind of a reject. No one really likes her. And she works, you know, kind of dead end job at a mall. And she's just, but she's obsessed by this Beyonce type figure. And that's her, she's willing to, she has not enough money to pay rent, but she's going to drop three grand on tickets to see this person in concert, pissing off her, you know, sister who is just trying to get by. Anyway, in the first episode, uh, things happen related to the, the sister's boyfriend and other things where she ends up, uh, Dying, taking her own life and leaving our main character completely adrift basically from reality and what she's also noticing is that people are are kind of dissing this Beyonce type figure that she loves and so she starts looking at the chat rooms and other parts of her life where somebody if anyone says anything negative about that Beyonce figure or anything on social media she begins uh, episode by episode uh, murdering them in crazy situations and it becomes kind of like uh, I mean, the, for, this won't appeal to everyone because they won't have seen this film, but you will understand. It's really Durfan mixed with Euphoria. Oh, nice. So it's okay. really got a Durfan thing where she is like, which is this great, you know, deep cut kind of, uh, you know, Austrian or European. I can't remember which country, uh, uh, you know, obsessed fan becomes obsessed with this uh, pop star and, you know, ends up being with him and wants to literally devour him to be have his presence that's basically it's a really messed up movie um this doesn't go quite to that level but kind of does and it's interesting because the main character's name's dre d-r-e and i'm like well the d-e-r der fan i'm like hmm am i reading too deeply <laughs> like the letter but uh i wouldn't be surprised donald glover goes very deep in his references and in, in all mm-hmm. pop culture um but each episode is so playful and dark and has that humor that's not always laugh out loud funny but it's there and each totally different scenarios but uh the one that surprised me is there's one where she stumbles into this kind of all-girl cult and belly ellish in her first acting debut is kind of leading this cult. she's actually really good in it and uh a few other people you'll recognize from um things like uh you're next and just you'll just start to notice certain characters uh, uh actors in it and you know it's just fascinating as she's slowly taking out and harming people who have talked ill of either her sister or this pop star and then kind of blurs reality by the end of the series. It's only about eight episodes. Each one's I started watching mostly just because I was curious the first one, but also then, cause it's like, you know, that 30 minute thing that you can fit into the end of a night when you can't fit a whole movie in. And by the end, I, wait, I got the episodes it. are only 30 minutes. Yeah. They're That's short. Wonderful. Yeah. They're really short. And then they have a very different kind of tone, but again, it might take a couple episodes to kind of see what it's going to be. The first one, it is maybe a little bit more grounded and then each one gets a little bit more like, you know, strange, elevated, dark comedy horror. Um, but yeah, I dug it. I actually really do recommend it. Cause I think it's unique. Um, I haven't seen anything quite like it. And I definitely haven't seen, um, I mean, cause technically, you know, uh, I, you tell me, but I can't think of a black female serial killer movie. And this is more or less what we're getting here uh, with this oh. character. And so she's becoming that kind of a thing. Uh, and it's like, I was trying to, I was searching my mind going, yeah, I don't think Challenge we've really seen accepted. that. Challenge accepted. I don't think we've seen that. I mean, it must now. exist in some in some yeah. media or movie, but. So is Swarm like a reference to like the Bay Hive? I is think so. Like yeah, what... yeah, yeah. I think it's okay. the Hive, the people uh, who are obsessed with the fandom and they're all on like a, a specific social media kind of thing. Wow. That sounds really awesome. Way more awesome than I was actually giving it credit for. Because I think I watched the trailer after I'd asked Chris Devlin yeah. about the font. And he was like, yeah, it's okay. And I watched the trailer and was kind of like, eh, if I get I will it. say the font. Now, the font is one I of the best things because each episode, the font stays the same. But what it's put on, like the colors and stuff changes each episode after the opening. And it's really creative. Like each time you're like, ooh, that was great. Like it's it actually does make a bit of an impact, uh, funnily enough. 
Um, so I got the chance to check out Trim Season, uh-huh. which just played the Overlook Film Festival last week. This is a new one from Paper Street. They've been doing some interesting stuff. This is Aaron Kuhn's company that I've I've definitely been paying attention to kind of some of the more recent stuff that they've been putting out. And plus, this is directed by Ariel Vida. Vida, I don't even know how to say her name, which is a damn shame. I'm going to say Vida. Um, because she was my production designer on the short film that I did for Shutter a couple of years ago, uh, Separation. And Ariel was the production designer on most of rustic stuff. Like she did the endless and um, a lot of just their the kind of rustic Justin and Aaron greatest hit. She's been their production designer for. So I was really excited, excited to see her finally get a chance directing. This has some really good stuff in it. It feels small. There's places of it where um, it feels like the, you know, that they they didn't necessarily have a lot of plot to it. But that said, it's got some interesting stuff. And the setup is really cool. The setup is definitely what kind of intrigued me the most, which is that a group of 20-somethings from various walks of life, all females, are go to what I'm perceiving as Mendocino County for trim season. And I was fascinated by this because during the pandemic, I watched a number of documentaries about what they call Murder Mountain, which is this area in Mendocino County, California, um, or sorry, Mendocino area, it's Humboldt County Mm. as well, where all of the pot farms are, many of them on the level, completely legal in California and pay a fuck ton of taxes. The rest of them function underground and sell marijuana to the black market. And those ones, it's far more dangerous because they're kind of operating without law. There's heavy amounts of theft and stealing and shady people and guns. And they call the area in Humboldt County Murder Mountain because supposedly there's like bajillions of people buried on that mountain who have been killed. Wasn't that part of that Sasquatch documentary? I'm getting to that, yes. So we had watched that and that was literally called Murder Mountain. Uh-huh. And it was like a three-part Sasquatch documentary, which didn't turn out to be Sasquatch. That was the name yeah. of um, a gangster or something yeah, like that. that's right. But that is kind of where I had assumed this was going to go. Like if you're going to make a movie set in the California woods on Murder Mountain, it's about time that it is Bigfoot. So I was literally watching, waiting for Bigfoot. I was not um it it was not that direction i will say i won't say where it goes but it was not that direction so it's about a group of 20 somethings who head to this like crazy off the grid underground grow farm um and they're there to trim and this is fun my brother-in-law actually worked as an illegal trimmer at one of the illegal farms for um 2 years ago he did it during the pandemic and they had some of that stuff was really legit like you work 16 hours a day you sleep where you trim and that's all you do is you you're in a kind of an enclosed environment. You get up, you trim, you go back to sleep. You do it straight for two weeks. You get paid by the pound and you know, you can make really good money doing it. And so they kept that stuff really true to fact. Like you could see that they had really researched this industry, what the people actually go through, mm. what you do when you trim. It's got Alex Eso in it. Um, so she was absolutely fantastic. A lot of the actors and actresses I was really impressed with. I'm not sure about the twist and I will hold that um, definitely, but that's where it kind of, I stepped back a little bit because it did not feel as organic to the first part of the movie. But that said, it connected it all really well at the end. And then I was like, yay, now I'm back in. Um, And this was, it was beautifully filmed because there's so many people smoking weed throughout the whole thing. They were really trying to kind of visually 
recreate not a trip, but you know, kind of the the haziness of you know smoking really good weed. And so they were really kind of trying to bring that in visually. So it's got some visual stuff. So yeah, um, I enjoyed the ride on this one. It gets a bit more absurdist as it goes along, but yeah, it it took some bold swings there. So go Ariel. That is trim season. I have no idea when this is coming out. It's just doing the festival circuit right now. Brian Collins gave it four stars and, and seemed to really like it on Letterboxd. So that's that's good. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't know anything about this one. It's one of it's funny, I, the ones that don't even have pictures yet on Letterboxd because they're that early. I still need somebody to make the Bigfoot trimmer um, marijuana murder mountain movie because twice now I have been, you know, kind of advertised for that because I went into that murder mountain movie or documentary. It was a docuseries on Hulu thinking, holy fuck, this is Bigfoot and pot and growers all combined. This is brilliant and was sorely denied. And once again, I went in thinking, oh, shit, it's like trimming and Bigfoot. And was once again sorely denied. And I will just say for the record that um, a couple of years ago, I decided to grow my own marijuana because it's California. And I was like 16 year old me would have loved this. So I did. I bought a plant and I grew it and it grew like four feet tall in my backyard. You have no idea how hard that shit is to trim. I will never do that again. That was like insane. So, yeah, that's my little sidebar. So mad respect to anybody who does that. Uh, yes. And Sasquatch could have come for you too. Cause you, have- I need the Sasquatch movie. Where is There's it? There's nothing I want to make more than a Sasquatch movie. As you know, I love we talked movie. about that on screen drafts. We do. So we yeah. won't spoil what gets on there, but, uh, it was very important to me that a Bigfoot movie of some kind make it on such a list. Very important. Um, but yeah, no, that, that would be, that does seem like a no brainer. I'd be, have to look at through. There's so many, like I said, on Tubi, there's a lot of bad ones on Tubi, but, uh, there are just way more than you would think exist on Tubi. Like I must've found like 20 that I didn't know existed. Uh, so maybe one of them touches on that. Uh, we'll have to find out. Uh, I, my last one outside of the new movie that we'll be talking to our guests about was a movie. I did, uh, Francis Ford Coppola director who I very much love, have always loved my whole life in his last 15 years or so where he's been making a lot of his own self-finance movies. I never actually saw Twixt because it was, there was a promise that he was going to go around with the movie live and re-edit it live. And that was a whole tour he's planning. And so I never watched it because I was waiting for him to come to my town so I could watch this vampire ghost story movie called Twix. Did we talk about this over the weekend or on the plane? And I just stroked out because for some reason I came back, I thought about it and I just added it to my Amazon. I'll, I'll tell you why it's probably in your mind. Cause no, I came back. I, but I've wanted to see it for the last couple of years uh, just because some people really like it. And other people were yeah. at the time were pretty dismissive, but at the time it was also 3d when he made it. And so the reason I'm bringing it up in our new section is because it actually is popping back up in the new feed of all Amazon and brand new movies, because there is now a whole different version. It's called, so he's changed the title to betwixt now and sunrise, the authentic cut. And that's what it's called now. And, uh, I, uh, you know, so I didn't know what he had changed cause I hadn't seen Twix. Um, so I watched it and it's 70 minutes or something. It's really short. Uh, it's gorgeous looking. I mean, it's look, there's another thing I, I, there's some stars you just start to miss, you know, when they're no longer acting in many movies. Uh, uh, and Val Kilmer is one of those people that as soon as like he pops up, I'm like, yeah, I want to watch Val in a movie as the lead actor, like investigating something. But where this movie, I think people might get a kick. It's not hard horror by any means. It's Val Kilmer is a uh, not great uh, horror author who only specializes in witch books. He just writes novels on witches. He pulls into the shitty town 
And he's like, where's the bookstore for my live reading? They're like, oh, we don't have a bookstore. And it just cuts to the hardware store that has a few books. And he's like doing his thing in the shitty hardware store. Uh, Bruce Dern rolls in. He's like the local cop who's like, no one knows who Val Kilmer is except the sheriff who's Bruce Dern, who's like super excited. He's like, oh, we got a we got a great, great cold one in the storage right now. You got to come see it. Like we could write a book together. And he's like, what do you mean? And he's like, brings him down to the morgue. And it has a stake through the heart of uh, this young girl. Uh, and and he's like, and this is we've had like a few of these over the years. Like and you find out that there's also a, like a nice old um, hotel that burned down. But it was famous because Edgar Allan Poe stayed there once. And so it's got a little memorial plaque. So, of course, this intrigues Kilmer and he you know pours one out for um, for Poe. And then when he goes to sleep and it's really about dreams. So it, I think it's a mistake to see it is a horror film in terms of it touches horror elements, but what it really seems to be about, like, honestly, it just seems to be about the creative process and writing and being personal with your work. That seems to be the subtext for Coppola and he can make what he wants because he's self-financing it. And so when, when Kilmer goes to sleep, it gets really beautiful. Like the, the waking world's kind of looks kind of cheap you know but the dream world is utterly gorgeous it's shot in this like almost off color black and white that's more like blue and he meets um a young l fanning who is uh, a girl who has been murdered in this town and uh she kind of is part vampire part ghost they kind of blur the line in this movie and she's walking through val through some of the stuff that's happened in this town and the different histories and then he befriends Edgar Allan Poe in his dreams, played by Ben Chaplin. And he's really, it's really cool that, so he starts working with Poe to try to solve these things, but only when he's dreaming. And when he's conscious, he can't work on any other crime. So he's just having to deal with, like, figure out who the real killer is and what the story is in the waking world. But in the dream world, it's very beautiful and just very haunting. It's definitely more of an art experiment. Like, he's taking bold art swings with color and lighting. And there's probably a couple sections that would have had uh, 3D. Obviously, I'm not seeing that. It ends crazy abrupt. And and I was like, oh, and 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 it's so short that I looked up what is the difference between these two cuts. And really it's just like the last eight minutes have just been literally cut out of the end. And so then I instantly went to find the Twixt cut. And I don't know which one I prefer. Maybe I I do I probably would watch the new one and then do what I did and then quickly go watch the other one to see how it ended. It kind of solves the crime, wraps up with a little bit of narrative that that you may or may not give a shit about because uh, the art side of it, it becomes more what you're watching. But uh, it was interesting to watch the other version. But I liked it goes to somewhere very fucking personal because uh, it it ends up Val Kilmer's lost his daughter and when they get into it. It's they show a flashback that is exactly what oh, Fran, for people who don't know Francis is one, one of his I think his oldest son when he was like 18 uh, was in a boating accident and was beheaded and it haunted Francis for a couple of his whole life because it was one of those days wow. he was meant to go with him boating and didn't and I think one of the things I was reading after his words and I don't know if this is true but I read this after I watched the movie is that Val Kilmer had called his son to come to a party instead of go boating that day. So I suspect he was casting Val Kilmer 30 years later as part of this, just going into his own, this own thing that happened his own yeah. personal nightmare. I don't know if that part's true that I read it afterwards. So I, I couldn't like research enough to know, but it would make sense because he would have been a young up and coming actor at the same time. Um, and uh, it was actually partly to do with um Ryan O'Neill's son was the one driving the boat. Um, so potentially to blame. So it's it's a very, you know, but but they they pull in a flashback towards the end that is so personal that if you know that, it like hit me like a fucking freight train of like, oh my God, you're gonna make this like weird little 
horror movie, but you're going to end it with towards the end of something that really happened to you. And it just, again, I have mad respect more than any of those big auteurs for Coppola because he was always the very personal one and the one who would always like, who would put his money where his mouth is and blow all his money on making something like he is doing right now with his final, probably final movie, Megalopolis. So, uh, it's it. I thought it was really unique. It, I definitely recommend it for if you're into art stuff, almost like Roland moments, like visually, and then other stuff that's just kind of very straight B kind of you know um, writer in a small town. But uh, but I just I missed it at the time because I was always hoping to see it as part of this remix because he always had these crazy ideas about movies, you know, trying to do them live and stuff like that. But um, I never saw this because when it came out, I was working at Fangoria and I remember us questioning whether or not to even like give it coverage. It was a question of like, well, is it a horror film? Well, I think it's a horror film, but is it like a good and that kept coming up? Like, is it good? And people not even or is it what he intended? And I, I it just definitely seems like having, it is. Yeah. Yeah. These questions over coverage. And we ended up having like we covered it a lot. If I remember correctly, I don't even remember if it went on the cover, but there was questions about like, you know, how let's give it a big article. Um, And I never ended up seeing it. Yeah, watch it. It's very like I said, it's kind of slight on the story and stuff. But in terms of visuals and seeing like interest, I love, you know, I love the Poe kind of thing is it's, you know, more fun than the new version where it's just Poe's an investigator. This is much more dreamy. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I thought it was cool. Fucked. How fucked is our industry that Francis Ford Coppola has to self find? Yeah, I mean, like I, I think at this point he just chooses because then he got so sick of the. Yeah, I mean, this the, the people forget there was a year in the Oscars where this dude went up for two different. Imagine you go to the Oscars and two of your movies are competing against the, the Conversation and Godfather Two in the same year, and he got Oscars for two different movies. I'm like, that is bonkers like you know then again i was listening to um a podcast a couple of days ago and the hosts were talking like how come david lynch doesn't make movies anymore did he just decide he doesn't want to make movies and i'm like screaming internally going no fuck they will not finance like you know the last one that he did you know he basically had to like self-finance for a pittance and so yeah and he got the big twin peaks thing made because it's ip and you know so you can get it but yeah no it's like for some and a couple of made you know uh a fortune in wine and, you know, he has put it all on the line on this last movie. So he spent $150 million of his own money on this new movie wow. that he's working on. So Twix is much smaller. But, uh, but you know, I just love – he's a true artist in that way. Whereas people like George Lucas, who literally, if you go back and look at old quotes, when after Star Wars, people asked him what he was going to do. He said he's going to take all the money and he was going to produce and direct and write small independent films for the rest of his career. Never did fucking Never shit. Did Never yeah. did anything. And he could have started a fund and done that. And so like they were all buddies and I'm always just looking at that guy. And then Spielberg's come and made the Fableman. So like of the, these people, I think Coppola has been pretty true to, you know, tr- being that kind of artisan. I mean, I still look back and think his Bram Stoker Dracula is an amazing movie, like just visually yeah. so fucking good. So um, anyway, cool. I thought it was cool. It was interesting. Okay. So before we part, I have my two graphic novels right. for the week. So I'm really excited to talk about both of these. Um, so I'm going to kick off with Sacred Lamb. This is a new one from Tim Seeley, who is doing the art for my upcoming mm-hmm. graphic novel series that I'm writing with Dave. Um, pretty evil. And so Tim had sent me a copy of this and I was like, holy shit. Now he wrote this. He didn't do the art, but the art is still absolutely amazing in this one, Sacred Lamb. Um, Art is done by, I wrote her name down because I loved her so much. Um, Jelana, I'm assuming it's a she. I shouldn't make that assumption. Um, Jelana Dordovic. 
but yeah, the art is just absolutely insanely good. Somebody please correct me on that person. Um, I don't know who they are. I just thought the art was amazing. But the whole setup of Sacred Lamb is that we open with this absolutely amazing scene where we are with a YouTuber named Kellen West. And Kellen West is immensely popular on um, YouTube and she does unboxing videos. But she has become stalked by this slasher. These are all slashers who is so inspired by her, he now unboxes humans. Hmm. And so it's all types of fucked up. And so you literally are kind of opened into this ridiculous cold open as she is being chased and killed. And we're watching him kill other people by this slasher. And she somehow is able to defeat him and the cops come and they take her away. But, you know, it's very much like there's this is a world where psychopaths exist online and there might be copycats and you've now kind of attracted all of these psychopath copycats. And so the cops decide to put her into this kind of witness protection program, but it's a town called Sacred Lamb. And it is a secret town where survivors of slashers go to live and they live in witness protection. And it's basically to stop the idea of um, there's always collateral damage with the slashers. So even if the slasher is just targeting Sydney, you know, 12 other people are going to die in the blast radius of Sydney. And so that's the whole idea of the town is that these slashers are relentless and they will kill everybody who gets in their path of getting to this one person. So they have to move this person and isolate them in a town and completely separate them from society in order to keep these slashers from killing, you know, dozens of people to get to them. And so Kellen West arrives in this town. It's all full of women and one guy because women are usually the final girl. And so it's all of these women who have encountered all of these different slashers. And every single one of the slashers that is created in this book is amazing. I would watch a full film. Like there's a satanic panic slasher. Um, there's one called the babysitter who's really cool. It's just all of these absolutely amazing slasher stories. And they're all there in one town. And half of them are like, I've got nothing to worry about. My slasher's dead right now. I'm just worried about copycats. And then a couple of them are like, I don't know. They never found the body. So you don't know, but they're all safe in this little town until they're not. And that is, um, this was a trip. This was a full graphic novel. I don't think this was ever released in individual series. I think it just exists as a book, but this is from TKO Studios and it was phenomenal, super gory super visceral. I had a blast with it. So this one is Sacred Lamb. And the next one that I will By the way, I think this is Jelena from what I can tell. Oh, thank you. So I was okay. just looking thank up the you. artist. So. It is she. Thank you. Amazing artwork. I should have searched that ahead of time so I don't misgender, but yeah, um amazing artwork. So, um but yeah, the story across the board was great. The slashers were ridiculously cool. And this was such a cool play on slashers to begin with where it wasn't just a standard. I would have read an entire graphic novel just about Helen West her unboxing videos and the slasher who is so in love with her, he wants to unbox her. I would have read that graphic novel with gusto, but this was such a cool twist in the way that it kind of unfolded. So really well done. And then the other one that I read this week was Dead Mall. This is one that um, it's been four issues I've read. I just finished the fourth issue. So this is individual comics um, coming out from Dark Horse. And uh, this one is from one of our prior guests on the show, Adam Cesar. 
um, who we know from Clown in a Cornfield, but we had him on, I want to say Shockwaves. We did. Yeah. We had two, a a couple writers on together. Yeah. Yeah. And he joined and I don't think Clown in the Cornfield had come out at the time. We'd had him on for a different book, like Video Night maybe was another one of his that I really liked. But he kind of blew up the YA space with Clown in a Cornfield a couple of years ago. And then he ended up writing a second one of that as well, which is also really good. And so this is his graphic novel that is, um, it focuses on something that we've all found really fascinating lately, abandoned malls. Mm. And the whole setup of it is that this mall, the Penn Mills Galleria, it's about to be torn down and it is completely abandoned. So five teens sneak into the mall and kind of just want to spend the night there before it's gone. However, the mall is not empty. And this is, there's like this super cosmic horror that is lurking inside the mall. And I won't go past that, but it is so cosmic and Lovecraftian and awesome. And this one gets super gory and it gets super just cosmic. I had a blast with this one. It says it's YA, but I've learned from writing my own YA graphic novel that that basically just means that your protagonists are teens. It does not mean much else um, because it does not restrict the amount of gore that you can have, the amount of horror that you can have, the amount of you know, kind of debauchery you can have, it does not restrict any of that. So when you see the YA title attached to horror books, it does not necessarily mean that it is like written for a kid or that it's, you know, PG-13 or anything like that. It just means, you know, YA protagonist. So don't let that set you back. The big thing that I took away from this, because it is set in this dead mall and it is very much this kind of cosmic God therein with these teens sneaking back in, they're all kind of having these these reminiscent moments of like, I remember my dad taking me here when I was in elementary school. So it very much is kind of the splendor of commerce in the 80s and 90s being dead now. And there's all of these kind of allegories happening. The idea that, you know, we used to go to malls to worship this God as, as like a temple. It was like a temple of commerce, everything all in one place. And so that now that they are dying, like, what does that say for our society? So you're getting a lot of commentary on malls, on the death of our old selves, of the fact that many of us are still kind of looking fondly at malls. Like, you know, we remember them very fondly from our childhoods, but at the same time, that that is very much like a dead thing at this point. Like they're just not what they used to be. And what I loved so much about the art in this one is that it gives you glimpses of that. Like you are staring at this absolutely desolate, depressed mall and this very monstrous situation that slowly it begins taking over the entire mall and everything therein. Like it very spreads in like a cosmic Lovecraftian cosmic manner. Think like color out of space. But at the same time, every couple of, pages you're getting a flash like it'll show like the fountain in the middle of the food court and you'll get a flash to what it looked like in 1986 when it was really bright and cheery and surrounded by people you'll get a flash of stores during that time period marketing campaigns and so it really is this beautiful kind of reminiscent for that which is very much dead and then this big old statement on commerce as a god this might be YA horror but there was a lot a lot of heavy heavy stuff in this I love this. And it's short, like it's only four issues of the regular comic. And um, it had a very definitive ending at the end of the fourth issue. So I don't know if they're going to keep going with it. It was very much like, you know, I feel like it was like a four and done. But that said, I would keep reading this if they kept going. Plus, it was super funny because Adam tends to be super funny in his writing. I loved this one so much. This is Dead Mall from Dark Horse. 
All right. Well, before we go to our guests uh, to talk about uh, the laugh shift mutating into the new Malum, uh, I was going to ask you, is there um, something you want to vote for? Um, yeah. So if you have not voted yet in the Rondo Awards, um, Elric and I are once again, um, our show Colors of the Dark, which you're listening to right now, is once again nominated for a Rondo Award. And we would deeply, deeply appreciate your vote. You can just go to Rondo Awards website. I believe it's like Rondo Awards. I don't want to say .com. It might be .org. I think I'm going to go with .com. Um, let me look that up real quick. Well, Elric, I'm 100% Tell sure us. it won't be a .com knowing uh, it'll be something else. Uh, but yeah, there, you can you can just vote for uh, just the best podcasts if you wish. Or you can vote for tons of tons of deep dive horror things from best articles magazines and lots of our you know friends are nominated for films uh so get in there uh it's fun to support uh oh, oh we were it was rondoaward.com oh impressed yeah yeah uh so. we have been we believe we're trying to work this out i believe this might be 2015 we won one so that means we we're nominated definitely the year before and so i believe we're about nine or ten years of nominations uh, yep. one win three different shows and we were the runner-up like at least seven or eight of those times we were the runner-up so so you know yeah. not a, not the best conversion rate but an amazing uh no. to be uh, to be mentioned so we've had a hell of a run and it's always such a treat anytime we get mentioned anytime we see our names come up in the runner-up we are always just elated because it means like people who are listening to the show took the time to email because that's how you vote for this is you do it through email to email and say like, Hey, yeah, I did them. So we are once again, asking for your time and your email. You can find the email that you need to send to on the rondoawards.com website. And please just email them. We encourage you to vote in every category, but if you only have 10 seconds, definitely let them know that colors of the dark is your favorite podcast. So Thank you guys so much. And to raise the stakes, just remember, if we don't win, the show's over. Wait, what the fuck, oh, Elric? I thought we talked about that. No? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, you need stakes. It's got to have attention. Otherwise, the person's listening going, eh, they'll be here forever. Hey, don't take anything for granted. <laughs> All right. So we're now going to fly to our awesome guests uh, uh, for their brand new, really, uh, really creep out movie, Malum. Tonight's episode of Colors of the Dark is brought to you by Athletic Greens and their nutrition drink, AG1, a product that Elric and I have been taking every day. After months of being in quarantine, Elric and I both wanted to improve our health in the new year. So we decided to try Athletic Greens. It's a health supplement that actually tastes great and really boosts your energy. Plus, it's from New Zealand, which Elric loves. So what is AG1? Uh, with one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, all those things. I started taking mine daily right before my breakfast um, and before I started in with the coffee. So it became this thing that I was looking forward to as soon as I got up in the morning. It lets me know that I'm getting the nutrients I need and after trying to sh choke down an assortment of homemade kale and quinoa smoothies I was making, I gotta say, the taste of this is great. It's got this wonderful lemon flavor. 
And it's lifestyle friendly, whether you are keto, vegan, dairy-free, paleo, or gluten-free. As you guys know, I have crazy food allergies, and it is free from all of the eight major allergens, which I was really impressed with. AG1, it's a small micro habit with big benefits, and it costs less than $3 a day, so way cheaper than the cold brew habit. Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. I take it like 30 minutes before coffee, and it actually has given me a little boost of energy, which has been great. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash C-O-T-D. Again, that is athleticgreens.com backslash C-O-T-D to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. All right. Uh, we are very excited today. I, th- I feel like the first real horror movie I've seen that I've seen about 20 movies and none of them really feel h- like hard going into horror gore grotesqueries. Uh, and this one is uh, a redux in a way of another movie that we liked uh, many years ago called The Last Ship. We are welcoming director, star, producer, uh, Anthony de Blasi and Natalie Victoria. Welcome, guys. Hello. Thanks for having us. And did we have you on for last ship like eons ago? I feel like we definitely talked a lot about it on the show. I think so. Yeah, I think we did. Yeah, Yeah, I'm pretty sure because that was one. um, I remember that we had kind of all put that in our top 10 list that this that year that it came out. Um, So when I heard that Malum was kind of a a version of it that was kind of taking nods from it, I was super excited. And then how much you kind of blew up the world with this was remarkable. Um, But start by telling us how this comes about, because honestly, this feels kind of like a director's dream to be able to take. (laughs) a project that you did great with. It was a dynamite project, but then say, let's make it even better. Well, and, and by the way, I saw a critic write, you know, one of those critic, those like bylines you see about a movie and somebody's like, you know, like, why would somebody, why would a director go back to a movie they already made and make it bigger? And I'm reading it going, um, I think you'll find that any director who ever made a small <laughs> movie they liked would do this opportunity. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, with, and listen, it is that double-edged sword because I'm like, I know Last Shift was well-received, mm-hmm. But to me, it's like it, it felt like in some ways still this kind of hidden gem. It's a lot of people hadn't seen it. And, you know, I was um, introduced to Luke LeBeau at, at Welcome Villain, the newly formed Welcome mm. Villain. Um, so if you ever want to talk all things horror, have those guys on because mm. they're. I quite... love Luke. I worked yeah. with Luke at Blumhouse many moons ago um, when he was there. And he is just awesome. He's yeah, a gem. Yeah. Love... <laughs> um, <laughs> And those other guys are pretty good too, but you know, Luke's the standout. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, he, I, I was introduced to him. I had not met him and he was like, Hey, we're forming this company. And he's like, I really like last shift. And what do you think about revisiting that world? And mm. we talked for a while about, Hey, is it, you know, cause Scott and I always talked about maybe doing a sequel or doing a prequel and I think Scott really wanted to do a prequel and I really wanted to do a sequel. So we just never wrote anything. <laughs> um, so when we talked about this, it kind of led into, well, let's reimagine it. Let's do the things we couldn't do on the first one. Let's give a bit of that prequel and a bit of that sweet sequel at the same time and, and turn it into something new. 
Uh, so I thought that was exciting with a, you know, with a bigger budget and uh, more reach, you know, we wanted to really play a theatrical run, try to hit obviously the horror fans, but also more of a mainstream audience to put the, you know, as you said, like Luke, all those guys came from marketing um, a vast majority of them in the mm-hmm. company. So they had just a really interesting take on how they were going to get this out there and how they were going to make sure our audience saw it, which is still going to be ongoing for the next few months. Um, so that was really exciting, you know, something new with a new company, but there's that double-edged sword. Cause it's like, well, people who liked the first movie are going to be like, why are you doing this again? <laughs> well, it's been, it's been just long enough that I forgot like 80%, you know what I mean? Like I was watching Malum and like, she comes in and I'm like, okay, I know the, the setup's the same, but then I'm like, wait, I don't remember her dad stuff. And then I didn't, re- and then there's the deepening of the cult stuff is way different. Like so much deeper yeah. getting to see them yeah. in their thing. Uh, shout out to Clark Wolf. Who, I, I truly didn't know she could go there in that way. And she does a great job in that movie stripped down. Uh, but, but, I, but it, so I think that actually benefits. I think sometimes like if everyone's like, oh, you should watch them back to back. It's like, you don't need to watch, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> the, I think the original has a spookiness that you get from the lo-fi. Like there's a a spooky quality just because it is lo-fi. But in this one, it's like um, I was thinking when I was watching, we were kind of talking about before it being one of the first real horror films. But I mean, I don't mean that in a way like, you know, Megan's a horror film. All these things are horror films. But in a way that like everyone went flocking to find Terrifier 2. Um, mm-hmm. This movie's nothing like Terrifier 2 in terms of like tone. But in terms of satisfying something you're looking for when you watch dangerous, scary yeah. movies uh, with real gore, with real, you know, stakes, uh, I think this really delivered in a way it felt definitely different than the original in that way. I felt like you're the actual, you know, the gore and what you're the payoffs of some of that are going to really stick with people. I think um, kind of, good. kind of speaking from your poster onwards on down, you know? Yeah. 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 yeah How good. did you decide what areas you wanted to kind of target and to expand? Because when you're looking at something that was like a really well-received project, like how did you pick and choose, like, you know, to build out the cult or to give her more of a backstory? I think, well, those were the two biggest things that like when Scott and I sat down to write and what we talked about was, you know, what, what would we have wanted to do in the first film? And I think the cult was a thing that I was kept saying over and over again, I want to create our own mythology for this movie and hopefully something we can expand further later, you know, something that's not just a satanic cult. You're like, Oh, let, let me take out the book of demonology and, Granted, we, you know, we kind of did that for the first one, right? We were like, all right, so that this sounds about, you know, this sounds about right. And it was really important to me that we created our own mythology with this, the things that people hadn't seen before and and tie the cult directly to, to the main character more. And then with the main character, it was about making her just more driven. She has a, she has a mission from the first page and that didn't exist in the first film. It was, she was more of, wrong place, wrong time. And that was important to us to give her um, kind of a a question that she really needs answered and then hopefully give her that answer by the end of the movie. You you got to create like an alienated character this time. And I mean alienated by the surroundings, but emotionally everyone's rejecting her and don't want anything to do with her because of her family. And I think that was a, that's a strong, you know, thematic element running through it. Um, and a big was was there stuff in the original that you know because I think we all feel this way if you make anything if anyone ever is brave enough to create right there's going to be something that you actually don't like that you're somewhat deep down like ah that never worked the way I wanted it to were there elements uh, 
in the original that you that kind of also helped you lead to things you wanted to kind of mend? Yeah, I mean, there's for sure things in that first movie that drive me crazy and mm. they just didn't make an appearance in this one. You know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like scenes, scenes that I were like, oh, the budget really showed there or, or just stuff like, why did we keep the other thing too? It's like, because that was kind of a science experiment, um, meaning with like time and budget. And we had worked with that crew a few times before. So we were like, feel like we could really punish them on that movie, <laughs> you know, really just squeeze them dry of everything they had. Um, the script was only 69 pages. Mm. Oh, wow. Um, Cause I think like by that point, I kind of really knew when I made dread, it was like 120 pages and it was a three hour movie. So I, I never made that mistake again. Like, and you, you know, it's your first film. You're going to, you're going to make that mistake in terms of like, you find your pacing, you find like, who am I as a filmmaker? So by the time I did the last shift, I'm like 69 pages is going to be 90 minutes on the nose. And it was, but because of that, I couldn't cut anything out of it. Mm. And it was like, I didn't cut a frame out of that movie. Mm. So you're kind of like, well, I got to put this scene in. (laughs) So just little things. So nothing. I mean, I think the actress, you know, Juliana Harkavy is excellent in that. And, you know, mm-hmm. Natalie Victoria, she's excellent in that. And she's and good. She's good. She's, she's good. <laughs> you know, so, you know, I was, I'm happy, but there was plenty of stuff that I was like, okay, we're just not going to carry that over and, and tell a new story. That's great. So you obviously pushed the cult in a much, much heavier, almost even cosmic direction for this. Like it's, it's got so many layers. I'd love to hear about how you formulated it out because Elric said it before the show started. It feels more Barker, like Clive Barker, than your Barker film. Like it is so much Clive Barker in there. I, I kept waiting for Cenobites to show up again. <laughs> well, they yeah. did at yeah, one point. There, there was a point where I saw the the creature. I won't blow anything. Yeah. Um, and you, I actually had to double take, and I was like, "Was that?" And then, yeah, it's got those notes to it. I think you know, and it's. You know, having worked with Clive so long, clearly I was super influenced with him and was drawn to him from the get-go because of his 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 style of filmmaking and his uh, approach to horror and his novels and, and how he looks at horror in general. Um, but, you know, I think you, as a filmmaker, I wanted to always have that. I, you know, you don't want everyone saying like, oh, you know, it's Barker, it's Barker, Barker stuff. But with this movie, it was different. I was like, I was like, listen, I'm just going to embrace those sentiments that I have too. And and I think it's, it's good that can people make those comparisons and, and with that creature you're talking about, I'm like, I know by this point, people are going to feel this influence. And, and it wasn't directly like, Hey, I want to, I, I had a concept to, to take what we saw in the first movie, but expand on it. Right. With this like rather generic, you know, pentagram look, which was in the first movie, but you know, how many movies have we seen pentagrams in? And it was fine for that movie because it's almost caricatures, right? The villains were almost like, they just did what they needed to do. But for this movie, I'm like, we still want to keep that imagery, but how do we make it different? So it was all about function, really function over form with that creature at the end where it was like, we want this to happen and we want to have that pentagram and work our way backwards in the design. But, you know, it, it has a, I think anytime you're doing body manipulation or extensions of the, 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 the form, you get that kind of Cenobite-esque vibe for sure. 
No, oh, and it's yes, and said as a positive oh. too. By the way, the Barker because so many, so few films actually yeah, yeah. can do that. To be honest, like very few totally. films can actually yeah. channel a, an authentic feeling. Because you know, some of us I think are more king heads, and some are more. But for me, it was Barker too, and so it's like because it's more like in the Lovecraft way, you can't put your finger on some of the qualities, mm-hmm. but they are nightmare inducing, yeah. <laughs> which is a positive. Yeah, yeah. And I yeah. will say the yeah. final frame of this movie. I'll call it your denouement. My favorite yep. ending I've seen in a movie in forever. Oh, um, thank but you. My, my big kind of question from a filmmaker perspective is, can you talk both of you about working um, with the heavy special effects? Because like every single scene in this movie has some level of practical effects that go along with it. And from a filmmaker perspective, those are your slowest days on set. Like that's where you always grind to a halt and you, you'll end up shooting for three hours because it took eight to get somebody into the makeup. Um, yeah. So I'd love to hear it from a filmmaker perspective and from an actress perspective. Natalie, you start because you're going to have a more positive take. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is true. Um, I love practical effects because although I have a wild imagination in front of any blue or green screen, it's always better to have um, the reality of that hits you because as a performer and an actor, it, um, you know, it really just helps you get into that headspace. It's a much more visceral reaction that you're going to have. And it's going to be able to help you get to that kind of magic moment type performance. So I much prefer it. Um, also those days on set, at least from the actor's perspective are funner, um, because we all love to play with that stuff. Um, and you know, you just don't get to do that when you're shooting dramas or, you know, thrillers or whatever. So it horror films are the best for that. So, yeah, I mean, I absolutely think they add to the overall ambiance and experience for the best performances from an actor's perspective, but Anthony, you can kind of jump in from the filmmaker's perspective. And with the performance stuff. Yeah. I mean, listen, CGI will always have its place. And we have plenty of VFX in this movie, you know, that help things out here and there, but even the hokiest practical effect satisfies something in us inherently that at least for, I think people who love horror because it's nostalgic and also it's, it's visceral and it's real. And, you know, it's kind of like why people are going crazy for, you know, baby Yoda Grogu on the Mandalorian. Cause I'm sure they debated like, well, let's just, you know, that's, will be our reference and we'll turn it into a CG character, but people fall in love with it when it's a real thing. It's like, mm-hmm. it's like gizmo, right? It, so it's the same thing. Practically. I always think is so important. You know, you push it as far as you can practically and just bring a little bit of life to things digitally and but yeah like as you said it can be a nightmare on a production when you know you're you're on a limited schedule you're like we can't shoot for 50 days and and, um (laughs) that i i think you i always take it for granted when you get on a set and you just spill copious amounts of oh look a cat you spill copious amounts of blood and suddenly everything is just screeches to a halt Oh my gosh. <laughs> like nobody wants to move. Nobody wants to touch anything. And, the, and like you just moving the camera around. Cause it's like, we well, don't want to redress. Every, it, it just becomes such a nightmare. And it really does. I mean, there's that hanging sequence in the movie that, you know, to give too much away, but it, it took so long. And, and we shot over so many different days kind of coming back to pick up things. And it was, it was such a, a big to do. But you know, you love it. You love it. You push push it for all it's worth. And um 
but it does. It really eats into your shooting schedule. I explain it to my students because all of my students um, in my horror class are like, and I'm going to have all this blood and that's awesome. But I'm always like, you got to think of it like glitter. Like yeah. once it is one yeah. place, it is everywhere. everywhere yeah. And then you can't walk across the set and it's constant yeah. resets and there's showers involved. Like it's yeah. a whole thing. Oh, trying to do a reset. I mean, forget it. Oh. Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, she's doused from head to toe, her hair, every piece of her body is soaked. And, you know, they're like, oh yeah, it's, it's like a four hour turnaround, you know, to get her back on set. And it's like, sometimes you just can't do that. Blood continuity is a whole thing in itself. Like when you're in the middle of a kill scene and you have to stop for the day and come back to it. And then it's like trying to paint the floor in the specific (laughs) manner that it happened to splatter the day before. It's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. So Let's talk a little bit about the sickos who designed some of this. Cause you know, we're talking about Clive Barker. We're talking about Hellraiser connections. There are some Hellraiser direct connections here. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the team who did this. I think we all know them, but they're really, I mean, I really love when they do work like this because I have no idea what to expect. And I love that feeling. Yeah. Russell effects, the team at Russell effects, you know, and it was actually great. Cause you know, when we talked to them, I was like, you know, it seems kind of perfect. You guys just came off a of Hellraiser, and you're jumping into this. And cause I, I knew we were, there'd be some, you know, we were getting into this Barker S territory. I think it would be good to have them be like, okay, well, we just did this and we just did this for this movie. And now we're going to do this. And it's, it's maybe things that they wanted to do on Hellraiser, but Mm. couldn't because of certain aesthetic things. And like, we talked about that, like, you know, for the, for the main like creatures and the, the kill scenes, like I would do storyboards or do some rough sketches and show them kind of stuff we did on the first movie and say, like, now we're going to make this, how do we expand on this? How do we make this better? Um, for that character, that Betty character with the kind of the wild face and stuff. We, I, I showed Sierra some paintings and we had some like common ground with artists and, and things that were kind of wanted to let them run wild with it and do something kind of crazy. So I definitely wanted to give them the freedom to like really just explore and, and create some crazy stuff. But it was great having them come off of Hellraiser because it, it really, I think it was also important to separate it, mm-hmm. you know, to make sure we weren't treading on that kind of same territory because it wasn't out yet either. Oh, Hellraiser wasn't. Yeah. That makes sense. We were, yeah. I mean, I went to the shop and I got to see it, but like, mm. because it's in the shop, but like no one else has seen it yet, you know? No, that's, uh, they did glorious and they were an absolute blast to work with. Like I, and I'm just continuously impressed about how bigger and wilder they keep getting with everything. So, I know, right? Um, how, so how did you um, kind of plan out all of the different sequences? Because a lot of times when you're dealing with movies where it is kind of moment after moment after moment, it will start to seem a little repetitive of like, oh, there's a scare here. There's a scare here. This one, and I had the same compliment for the first one, you're constantly changing up the way that the scare presents itself and whether it's going to be a gore gag or something jumpy. How did you kind of determine the order for those and and kind of, I'm picturing like an Excel doc of like various (laughs) scares. I mean, there was an Excel doc, you know, especially because when we went to the Russells, we were like, okay. And I made that, you know, I made the document. I did the breakdown. I was like, here's everything in the script and it's it's a it was immense amount of stuff especially for our budget size and our schedule and you know they're like okay 
But I'm also very practical in the sense of like, okay, here's our hero stuff. Let's start at the top, most important, work our way down. I put everything in order of, of most important where I wanted their time to go. So we could at least get the, the business side of that stuff done and know like priority. A lot of the stuff was just kind of on the fly on set. Um, but during writing, I mean, some of it's just, I don't know, like, you know, you just experience and, and magic in a way. I mean, I, I bring up Predator a lot because Predator is one of my favorite films and I think it's just master, like masterfully paced in the sense that, and I probably referenced Predator while we were talking to them and, and just the team in general is that, you know, that movie's it's a war film. You're getting, you're getting blood and guts through that lens you're getting blood guts and action through that lens. And then we're introducing something unknown and you get some, get a something spooky and you get some blood. And then, and then once they introduce this alien, it's in the most crudest form and it, 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 it climbs through the whole movie and it satisfied, satisfied me so much as a viewer. But by the time he takes off his mask, I'm like, wait, what he's going to take off. Like there's something under the mask. I didn't even like think about what's under the mask. Cause I'm so satisfied up until this point. So I think that's something I always like feel like pace it, pace it, pace it, pace mm-hmm. it. Cause also I thought the first one we paced really well. So that was like, we can't fuck that up. That, that pacing, how do we, yeah. we stay? Uh, can I swear on this show? Yeah. Fuck yes. Okay. <laughs> it's encouraged. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so, so, you know, we, that was just really important to have that payoff and then that, that it ends in the highest place, you know, that we are, we are, we're giving the audience like exactly what they need at the exact right time. And hopefully they feel like, Oh shit, I get, I get more. And, and, and by the time it's over, they're ready to go, you know? And you end it that way. So six years from now you can reboot it again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> no, but Lisa, this, this one, one does open to that, that feeling. Million, yeah. It's going to be massive. <laughs> Predators in it. It's Wait, is this a pyramid scheme or of a movie? Because it sounds like a pyramid scheme. It's like you're it's a pyramid scheme. You're just yeah, a pyramid scheme. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the casting too? Because just again, it must be a little surreal to recast. Like you're starting, you're making. You know, I I, I also will say this though. I don't. I guess for me, this is a bit more like Evil Dead 2 than it is like some of the other, like it's not funny games, right? Where it's a direct, yeah. like I saw somebody say a yeah. shot for shot remake. I was like, what are you talking about? This doesn't feel no. all like that. Like it doesn't, you know what I mean? Like there might, you might be repeating certain things that work, but it feels like a different scale. So it's a different vision. So when you're casting that again, and and also a whole bunch of new roles, obviously, uh, there's one person, it's so funny how sometimes a small, not there's no small roles, but there's a person who I just, you know, you, how you just notice someone and you're like that guy, uh, I guess his name was Sam Brooks, the cop with the mustache. Yeah. Just yeah. like, Loved him. just saying about that character, like you pops and you're like, oh man, I'll, I'll watch a sequel spinoff with that guy someday. Just that guy. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, that's, that, that's an art of casting, right? Like uh, an ensemble, yeah. but I was like, yeah, just tell us a little bit about the process for this one. You know, at, at first you feel kind of guilty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there is a guilt to it of like, okay. Cause you know, I, I, I love the the first cast and and there is a like, okay, well, we're making another movie and we're not casting any of you except, you know, Natalie. And Natalie's that kind of Easter egg character. You know, I I, I wanted this walker of worlds here. Like she's like Marigold of the multiverse in a way, right? It's just like, who is she in this movie? Um, but yeah, it, it's both 
what's great about it is I never felt like I was making the same film. Yeah. I mean, recap and it was important, like not to, we didn't want to bring back that cast because we wanted to felt feel different. We wanted to give it a different title and we never wanted to feel like we were rehashing anything. And, and starting with the cast is a great way to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and also years now, 10 years later, everyone's at a, you know, in a different age range, you know? So like Jesse, uh, uh recasting the Jessica character that was kind of an automatic um and we felt like she was so different on the page that Jesse Sula was you know she really just felt kind of perfect for it because she is like you said she's come she's gonna get the world against her and she's coming in with kind of a chip on her shoulder and you know there's a there's a there's a finite thing in production where you're like okay is she likable is she empathetic right are we giving her those moments where people are able to see her as a rounded character, not just someone who's always defending her father. And I think she had that great, that quality that she brings. So you see that transformation of where she gets at the end is someone who could start here and get there. Um, And like you said, like Sam, Sam Brooks and uh, CMS who plays his, his partner Mm. Hudson you know, I, I was think- super impressed with Clark in this one because um, Clark, I mean, she's a friend, like I've known her forever. Um, and she she just was amazing in this, like the vitriol just coming from her. It was just amazing. <laughs> when, yeah, when Clark auditioned and I was not like super familiar with Clark. Um, uh, and, you know, and I don't know why. I mean, I, I guess I, I mean, we had like been in the same social circles, but I was not I was not someone who was following her work as you know presenter and host and things like that and when i said um you know i want to cast clark wolf in this part like luke and eric were both like really because they hadn't hadn't seen the auditions or anything and they were like like clark because they know who she is very much her normal demeanor it's so perky and personable and just cheerful and she glows and Mm -hmm. yeah and none of that like she was just pure rage evil in this it was beautiful yeah i'm like you guys don't know what she brought to the table like and and like this just that stare she had in the movie like she goes there and she knocked it out of the park and it was great to direct um throughout the whole process took took notes really well as well as Natalie Victoria, who reprises her role as Marigold, um, which I always love working with Natalie. Yeah. Was she? Were you the exact like in your mind, Natalie? Were you the exact same person, or was she a different version? Like, how did you interpret it differently? I interpreted it as a completely different movie. Yeah, just a completely different person. Um, just something totally separate and it had to be because you know every single role you know that I approach try to leave everything on the table and just you know give it all and then having to kind of you know go back and then you know having this opportunity was a very unique opportunity which I think is really cool and you know I'll probably never have that opportunity again as an actor but I wanted to reimagine it just as much as they were imagining the whole film so that in the event any last shift um, fans were watching Malum that they would feel like they were getting something new. And Mm -hmm. my goal was to completely disappear so that it was so different and so different of an experience that people wouldn't even know it was the same actress unless they looked it up after the fact. So that was the goal is to just kind of 
disappear into that. You get to do one of my favorite things that creeps me out in movies is and, and, and in real life too. Uh cats usually do it to me, which is where they are staring right past your shoulder and you know it's terrible. You know the cat you know you're gonna die, but the cat's okay with that. The cat's like, <laughs> I'm gonna watch you die. And say and you do you do that a couple times and really creeps me out quite well. So. <laughs> yeah. The cats stare like it's yeah, uh, it's just like I wouldn't look turn around if I was you right now. <laughs> it's a real thing. Wow. I do not have a cat. I uh, no, dogs are dumb. They They'll just bark at shit. They don't do that. They're just like, just cut my head. Yeah. I love you. No. So. Cats oh. have like full conversations with dead things all the time. It does feel like that sometimes. It's really creepy. <laughs> but you channeled that. So I think you brought the cat stare into that. It was great. Were you, Natalie, were you on set for when you weren't on a screen? Like, was this like, were you heavily involved behind the scenes on this one? I was on set for a little bit um, as much as I could. Yeah, yeah. You know, I have other responsibilities. So um, I wish I could just be on set the entire time. But yeah. I was, yes. Um, one to I love watching, you know, other colleagues' performances yeah. and being there. Um, I love the whole movie making experience um entirely. I mean, I've been doing this for a while now. So yes, anytime I can stay, I'm I'm staying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where did you guys shoot this at? It looked like you had full run of the police precinct that you were shooting in. It was in Louisville, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Oh and wow. It, it, it was. It was a decommissioned state. It, it's basically why we went to Louisville which had a lot of challenges, but the location was excellent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, going in, I was like, we have to find, you know, here's your task, find us a decommissioned police station. Cause shooting in a real one, I just can't imagine even trying to do that. Yeah. Um, so they found one in Kentucky. One of the uh, financiers was in Kentucky. He's based in Kentucky. He's like, I think I have a cool place down here. You should come check it out. So we flew down there and it was, it's a massive station. It's, in the heart of the city it's four stories it's got a basement it was it was pretty awesome uh and a just a maze of a location and the new station was not that far off and i they kept saying like we're going to tear this down we're going to tear this down it's still there cuz cuz we went back and did some pickups and uh it's still there so i don't know what they're going to do with it but yeah it was we shot mainly in the upper levels well we shot all over the place but the main office is up like in the cell block level, which, you know, was, it was summertime. It was very hot Ooh, uh, so in that, hot. so hot in that building and very oppressive. Cause like, that's where the, the inmates were housed on two levels up on the top floors. And it, it was, it is literally like a labyrinth, which, cause I, I kept going back and I'm like, man, I cannot find my way around. I like, you have to put up signs uh, for the, the crew and the cast are, and they, and they design it that way on purpose, because mm-hmm. if there's ever, if there's like a prison break or anything like that, they can't get out. Like they can't, it's not easy to find their way out. So wow. <laughs> it created a whole other level. Sounds slightly nightmarish, which is good. <laughs> yeah. And how was but it? The location itself was, was, was like, like a character. It was its own character. Yeah. Um, it, the architect, you know, harkened back to like the 1940s and 50s, and yeah, um, it had like you know, real blood on the walls, <laughs> which was crazy, and it's black just... mold, and and I mean, it it was really creepy in and of itself, mm-hmm. so much so that I mean, there was even a hallway that like the actors just did not want to go down. So, 
If you're creeping out your actors, that's a good location. So, and how was it working with the pig? Um, because that's, I love working with animals on set and I never get to. So was the pig nice? <laughs> the pig's fantastic. I yeah. would have hugged, was super nice. I would have been hugging the pig. That was a whole thing with the, the pig is, you know, we had gone to some pig farms because we knew we needed this big pig. And they're like, man, these pigs have no, they just don't have enough human interaction. And like, you know, the owner's like, we don't know what's going to happen. We're down to bring these pigs to set. We don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> um, so I was like, I wish we could find a pet pig. And strangely enough, the farm location that we had already locked in, we were talking about it. And the daughter was like, I have a pet pig. It's up on that mountaintop over there. She's like, let me come bring it up. You can come look at it. And it was like the perfect <laughs> pig. It was, it's like a 650 pound Yahtzee. pig. <laughs> Yahtzee the pig. <laughs> and it was she raised it since it was a piglet it was totally domesticated um super friendly i mean literally she just called it and it would do whatever she asked it to do that's what because we had pigs i grew up on a farm and we had pigs when i was a kid and i remember them being kind of like puppies because some magically disappeared which they don't explain to you when you're seven <laughs> um and then other ones you know kind of hung around the farm for a really long time and they were kind of just like puppies so yeah yeah, yeah. um really big puppies so. yeah really big puppies <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, we talked about a little bit about uh, Clive Barker's Predator, which was good. Um, <laughs> everyone can dream on what that would look like now. Uh, but other like uh, movies, you know, obviously we go through ways where we don't, when you're making something, you don't necessarily watch other things. But like certain other films that maybe uh, found their way in, like you just saying you're in Kentucky makes me think of John Carpenter, you know, uh, coming from there. And there's a, obviously a little bit of a Sultan precinct inherently in the idea. But there's also yeah. more of a flavor of Prince of Darkness. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of kind of like just the world and kind of the gore. But I, I wondered if other movies that you just are, you know, you dig overall, just people are always listening and looking for those like little tidbits that might lead them to another great movie. I think on the first film, you know, the influences were, you know, very much inherently the idea is very Assault on Precinct 13. And then it, like Prince of Darkness and Nightmare on Elm Street mm. and, and, um, this documentary called Manson from 1973, which mm-hmm. was very influential to the cast. I would mm. make the cast watch it. And on this movie, it was a little different because all those kind of influences inherently come over a bit. You know, we talked about Sinister a lot, which I which I love. I think it's a great mystery movie. Yeah, it's really strong. And we talked about the like the Evil Dead remake mm-hmm. um, for its kind of level of gore and intensity and yeah. having those two films kind of be our lighthouses, you know, and not, and it's like you said, you, that's more of like when you're about to sit down and write the script yeah. and then, and after you get that script out, I kind of don't watch anything. Right. I, I almost don't want to be influenced by anything. Yeah. Once you kind of create the world, yeah. you know, all the way through post-production, but those were definitely some, some influences on this. Cool. And where can people see this now? Like it's running theaters currently. Um, and, and so where can we find it? Um, how long are we looking at it in theaters? And yeah. It's, you know, it's like a limited nationwide right now. Um, yep. And then, you know, we're hoping theatrical. theatrical yeah. We came out the 31st. It will be in theaters for a couple of weeks, you know, hopefully, you know, and the more, you know, the more, more business it does, the longer it will stay. So, you know, we got some. So please. Some definitely- 
You got some competition out there. <laughs> well, I do. I do. I wish I had seen it in a theater. I mean, honestly, because it did. It's again, it's the feeling I miss. I, it, with things in the darkness actually coming for you. You know, we don't get that. I feel like it's getting fewer and fewer every year with that kind of horror. So to me, I think great if you can support it in theaters, but either way, it's going to play great, you know, at home too. So, well, you yeah, can go at 10 o'clock show tonight, Elric. It's playing near you for sure. Wait, in Santa Clarita? Because I live, I live out in the boons. <laughs> I mean, you know, maybe a little bit of a drive. Okay, okay. <laughs> it is the thing. It is around. It's not. It, it's in. It's a certainly a hefty amount of theaters in Los Angeles, New York, Austin. Right. Um, yeah. you know, so definitely recommend checking this one yeah. out. Well, it is in theaters. I was um talking about at the top of the show that I had watched it on my computer screen, and then when I finally saw some of the effects in a much larger screen, it was like, oh my gosh, they're glorious. They're beautiful. Um, so yeah, I really recommend checking this one out because it also does have this amazing feeling that you get with horror where it's the claustrophobicness. It feels closed in. It feels completely off the hook. You don't know where this movie is going. Um, even watching it on a computer screen, it felt so jarring and, um, out of control that that would just be so much more um, exacerbated in a theater. Like, I feel like it's a great theater film. Well, that means, that means a lot guys. I mean, you, you know, you're, you're the pros here, also filmmakers. Mm So, uh, so thanks so much for saying that. Do you know what's next for you or is it still just Malum basking time? Well, Natalie and I are shopping around a project because we've been writing together um, called the step counter now, which is like a thriller. Mm. Nice. Uh, female driven thriller yeah yeah cool yeah hand that rocks Very the cradle cool. type which which seems to be getting a new i feel like those movies are getting a lot of attention right the second i know uh the what is it uh karina longworth's podcast is doing a whole year of basically 80s erotic thrillers and now 90 erotic thrillers but also criterion just put on all these amazing erotic thrillers from the 80s and 90s on their channel a couple which i'd never even heard of and i i feel like we all grew up in the time where those movies were on yeah. you know i felt like i saw all of them so the I, I think it's kind of exciting because there is a difference between that and lifetime i feel like lifetime has co-opted yeah. a lot of the themes but there's something yeah. about the quality of those erotic thrillers that were always so adult driven and like yeah. yeah it was always this shininess to it like yeah. it felt like a big budget and i yep. mean i think that lifetime has adopted some of those themes but it's also a very formulaic and oftentimes campy presentation yeah. of mm-hmm. it um that for those erotic thrillers that they're only successful if you do take it in kind of like a sliver light where it is yeah. so fucking serious that yeah like, you can hear a pin drop as they say these like ridiculously absurd sleazy lines. Yeah. Um, and then it becomes successful. This is kind of like yeah. Sliver, actually. Watching people on yeah. Zoom, it's like it's like I'm, I'm Baldwin in the room. <laughs> I, know. I know. So, Anthony, well, could you yeah. just move to the left a little, please? Uh, <laughs> I'll, dr- I'll start directing you in your office. <laughs> well, I hope you guys get that one sold because I want to see yeah. it because I love my thrillers. That is absolutely absolutely fantastic so good um well thank you guys so much for coming on everyone please go see malum in the theater and um definitely if you can't make it to the theater check it out i'm sure it will be streaming soon and yeah so thank you guys so much for joining us and thank you all everyone for listening remember that if you just need more colors of the dark you can always find us on our patreon show deep cuts where shit gets really weird that's where we put all of the weird titles that we cover and otherwise we will be back in two weeks with a little vampire action
The Colors of the Dark podcast is a Fangoria production. Producers and co-hosts are Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane. Executive producers are Tara Ainsley and Abby Gould. Associate producer is Jessica Soth of Amir. Sonic branding by Michael Rodriguez. And, of course, our amazing sound engineer, Ernie Hurtado. 